If you would take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 6, we'll start in verse 45. If you've noticed in your bulletin, we have an opportunity at the end of the service to hear from our uh, Uganda team and uh, watch a short video on what took place in Uganda, so um, I'm going to preach a shorter sermon. <laughs> said, every pa- <laughs> said every pastor everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah. mm. well, let's read together Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crown. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was uh, against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities and in con- or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, he might, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, it's a word from you that we need this morning. And so God, would you take these words and uh, implant them onto our hearts. God, would you remove me from this equation and, and help your word to be what is clear. Uh, not my thoughts, but your word. Because it is what gives life. And so Spirit, we invite you to use this word in our hearts this morning to do heart work uh, upon us. And Father, we thank you for this time. We give it to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in Randall Wallace's uh, famous book and now movie, uh, Braveheart, we see the story of Scotland winning their independence, their freedom from English tyranny. And uh, it was actually a couple summers ago I was able to be at the exact site and location where William Wallace was executed for his part in this fight for independence. And one of the things that makes this story and, and this movie in particular so interesting is the way that Randall Wallace, the, uh, the writer, paints this striking contrast between its characters. On the one hand, you have William Wallace, the leader of the Scottish rebellion that's fighting for their freedom. On the other hand, you have King Edward the Longshanks, king of England at that time. And, and what you see is that Edward is this ruthless, this brutal man uh, who's selfish and greedy and he allows his people to starve and actually sacrifices his men in battles uh, just thoughtlessly. On the other hand, you have Wallace who 
fights himself, doesn't just send his men in to die, but actually fights himself and will not compromise at all. Uh, even when he's offered gold and land uh, and, and, and power and prestige um, to betray his people, he, he will not. He's faithful to them and he fights for them. And actually, uh, spoiler alert right here, um, he actually dies. He's tortured to death so that his uh, people can gain their freedom. And so you see this contrast. And I think contrasts like this in Braveheart, um, but, but also throughout life, contrasts help us to see uh, a point, a theme, an idea. That's why if you go into a, a jewelry shop, oftentimes you'll see diamonds placed against black felt with lights shining on them from above because that, that, that diamond sparkles. The beauty of that diamond is, is just so much more obvious when it's placed against a black backdrop or a dark backdrop. That contrast demonstrates the beauty of the diamond. Similarly, I think Christians, those that are following Christ, uh, grow, their faith is increased, their uh, walk with Christ is, is, is more rich and more close in times of difficulty, in, in times of trial, in times of persecution and struggle. And I think that contrast, uh, when we see our lives up against the beauty of Christ, it makes it so more apparent to us. And I think that's the case before us in the text. Really, the last few passages that we've studied in Mark's gospel, we've seen this. Uh, Mark has been demonstrating to us the authority of Jesus. We've seen that viewed against the authority of the religious leaders in that day, uh, the religious elite and Jesus, and, and it's Jesus that supersedes them in every facet, every way. We've seen Jesus' authority viewed against the backdrop of nature, that he has power over, over storms. We've seen it uh, against the backdrop of demonic activity and sickness and even death. And every time Jesus shines brighter, We've seen it against the uh, backdrop of a, of a wannabe earthly king in King Herod. Jesus shines brighter. And, and, and now we, we see this morning Jesus' authority viewed against the backdrop of another seemingly life-threatening situation for these disciples. Uh, if not life-threatening, at least dire, at least exhausting, at least physically uh, straining. The emotions of these disciples are what we see, and against that backdrop, we see Jesus and his power, his authority, who he is, shines brightly against that backdrop. And so a bit of a recap. I know it's been a while since we've been in Mark um, with the Uganda trip, and then last week my dad preaching. And so just to catch us up, Mark has been showing readers in his gospel who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's God's Messiah that came to take away the sins of his people. And we've seen Jesus' teaching ministry. We've seen his uh, miracle-working ministry. Most recently, we've seen Jesus uh, feed thousands of people with just a uh, Jewish boy's lunch for the day as he multiplies and miraculously provides uh, fish and bread for a mass of people. And so at this time in Mark's gospel, as we're walking through um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Mark, uh, we see that messianic expectation, the hopes of a Messiah, was at an all-time high. Now their understanding of what a Messiah was, was quite different. Again, they're still thinking that a, a Messiah was going to come and overthrow Roman government, but their expectation for a Messiah was at an all-time high. And in fact, in John's uh, version of the, the feeding of the 5,000 story, uh, John chapter 6, we see that at the conclusion of that miracle, they actually came to Jesus and said, uh, we're going to take you by force. We're going to seize you and uh, force you to be our king because we're seeing the stuff you're doing and we're pretty sure with that kind of power, you could overthrow Rome. And so they, they try to do that. 
But we know, as, as readers of the gospel, we know the end of the story. This is not the time nor the means by which Jesus will receive his kingdom and his crown. I thought that was my phone. <laughs> no, it's good. I thought it was me. Um, it, Jesus, Jesus will receive a kingdom and a crown. That's coming. That's certain. That's for sure. But it's not here. Before Jesus will ascend to his throne, he must ascend a hill called Calvary and, and, a, and, a, and a cross, a Roman torture device. He will receive that kingdom and that crown, but it's not by force and it's not to overthrow Rome in this way that all these folks are thinking. And so this morning as we look at this miracle of Jesus walking on the water briefly, we'll not spend a, a great time here this morning, but I want us to note three things in this text that I think we should remember as believers, as Christ followers, when we're going through difficult days, when we're struggling, when we're having difficulty seeing the light at the end of the tunnel or any hope in the midst of despair, three things I think this text teaches us. Number one, we're never outside of Christ's sight. We're never outside of Christ's sight. Number two, we're never outside of Christ's reach. Number three, we're never outside of Christ's care. We're never outside of Christ's care. So number one, we're never outside of Christ's sight. Look at verse 45 uh, through 48 again with me. Jesus has taken this, this uh, politically charged situation, this, this, this time where they're trying to seize him and cause him to be king, and he dissolves it by forcing the disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of the sea. And so uh, we've already read the text. You've heard it read. Uh, you know the disciples are in a difficult place. They've, they've obeyed Jesus, they've gotten into the boat, and they've, they've gone out into the sea, middle of the Sea of Galilee, at night, and they're fighting a headwind, and they're not going anywhere. They're fighting against this, this wind. How was it that they got into this tough spot? How did they get into this predicament? Well, look at verse 45. Immediately, he, that's Jesus, made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus, the, the text says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. The word here in the Greek is, a, is actually a pretty strong word. And, and it's to force or compel someone to do something. And so to be clear here, Jesus is not smacking them around. He's not bending them over his knee. But he is firmly commanding them, forcing them to get in the boat and go ahead of him. Get out of here, this situation that's unfolding with all these folks, and go to the other side of the sea ahead of him. And so the disciples were in this tight spot because they were obeying Jesus. They were in this tight spot because they were listening to Jesus. This should cause us to have a little bit of deja vu this morning. This is not the first time this has happened in Mark's gospel. If you remember the last time they crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was Jesus that commanded them into this incredible hurricane-type wind and storm. And now here Jesus again, he's intentionally leading them into this unfortunate um, situation, this circumstance that's difficult. So much for the prosperity gospel, right? So much for churches or teachers that'll tell you that if you'll just have faith, Jesus will get you out of that problem. If you'll just have faith, if you'll just trust God, then he'll not lead you into trouble. Your life will be okay. He'll bless you and prosper you. That's exactly the opposite here. They were in trouble because they were obeying Jesus. Because they were obedient to what Jesus had told them. They're in the midst of this situation now where they're struggling against this wind all night, working at the boat, and, and they're going nowhere. But Jesus had a purpose for this trial, and, uh, and we'll see that unfold. Danny Aiken says this, Jesus may indeed send us into trouble and difficulty, but with a redemptive purpose. There, our understanding of his providence and power is increased. 
It's there that our faith and dependence upon him alone grows. His plans are not always easy. They're not always what we want, but they're always best. And I think we, we, we would do well to heed that this morning, to realize that, that, that following Jesus doesn't mean that life's always hunkadory. It's always just a bed of roses. It's cushy and nice and soft. Sometimes Christ means for us to go through trials, but it's always for our good and for his glory. Even if we don't get to see that on this planet, even if we never get to understand that on this earth. And so Jesus sends his disciples across in the boat. He dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray. Look at verses 46 through 48. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So picture this scene, church family. The disciples are stuck in the middle of the lake. They're fighting this wind. And again, not hurricane force winds like we saw earlier in Mark's gospel. Not winds that they thought they were about to die because the boat was about to capsize. But again, winds that, that no less are making this not a fun situation. You can imagine striving all night against the, the oars trying to make it across the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to no avail. And Jesus is up on the mountain praying. So what do we learn here? I, th I think we see a couple things. We learn that anytime Jesus faces a critical moment, he goes to the Father in prayer. And think about this. Every situation, not just the bad ones, not just the times when Jesus is stressed out or, or, or whatever the case may be, he's going to the Father at all times. We see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that before he begins his ministry, when he's in the wilderness, he's going to the Father in prayer. These are decisions, ministry decisions that are, he's making. He's doing it uh, as he goes to the Father in prayer. After an incredible time of success, right now in the text. I mean, again, he's just performed this miracle, and the people want to make him king. You talk about success. How many of us have ever been forced to be king? The people were, people were wanting him to be in a place of power and authority. What does he do? He goes before the Father in prayer. Later in his life, we'll get to it in Mark, when he's, when he's going to the cross, before he goes to the cross, in a time of agony and stress, so much so that he was sweating drops of blood. What does he do? He goes to the Father. At, at every moment in Christ's ministry, every time there's a, there's a, a, a serious situation, a, a happy situation, a success or a difficulty, he's going before the Father. Are we like that? Is that our knee-jerk reaction? Is that where we go when we're, when we're excited? We want to share it with our Father. When we're burdened, we want to share it with our Father. We see that modeled for us in Christ. I think so often, and I'm confessing a bit of, of myself this morning, but I think it could be characteristic of many of us. That oftentimes we go to the Father when we're in trouble, when we've ran out of options and we need a fix. We need him to do something for us. We're desperate, and so we go to him. Jesus went to him at all times, and he's praying at that moment. And in verse 48, it says that he saw them and they were making headway painfully. So from where Jesus is at on the mountain, don't miss this. I think this would be so easy to read past in the text and not see it. But from where Jesus is at on the mountain, he's watching them and he's not disconcerned. He's not just uh, apathetic to what they're going through, to, to their situation, to this trial, this struggle that they're in. He cares for them in this predicament that they're in and he's never taken his eye off them. Verse 48, he saw them making headway painfully. And so the first miracle in the text, I think the text has three miracles in it, but the first miracle in the text is that he sees them. Now, the Sea of Galilee is eight miles across. And so by this point, the disciples are at least a couple miles out into the sea. Uh, Matthew 14, in Matthew's version of this story, he tells us that they were a long way out into the sea. So the disciples, they're struggling out in the sea. Now, 
I think, I think, hear me, I want to hear, hear this fairly on a, on a clear day. On a, on a perfect bluebird day with the sun shining, it's beautiful, the, the water is still, there's no wind. It's just a perfect, pretty day. You might be able to look out on that mountain where Jesus is standing and see over into the Sea of Galilee and see that there's a boat out on the water. I'll give you that. That might be possible. But even then, I seriously doubt that you could identify the boat and its occupants, even in great conditions, even in perfect weather conditions. But this is nighttime. It's dark. And beyond that, there's a, there's a wind that's whipping up waves against the boat. They're struggling to even, even paddle the boat out across the sea. And Jesus miraculously sees them. Not only does he see them, he knows it's them. He knows it's his disciples and that they're straining at the oars. He knows they're struggling. So what do we see? Jesus is seeing them. Jesus has never taken his eye off them. He's watching them. And I think the application for us this morning is this. You're never outside of Christ's sight. Even this morning, if you feel isolated, you feel disconnected and cut off from the world. And maybe that's a, that's a real reality for some of us that have been snowed in for the last week. You're like, I don't know if anybody even knows I'm still alive. I don't know if anybody even cares, even about, anybody even knows what I'm going through, the struggles that I have. I haven't been able to talk about my problems with anyone. I don't think anyone even cares. Friends, Jesus sees you. He knows your situation. He sees every moment of your day. He knows what you're going through. Whatever you feel alone, whenever you feel abandoned, whenever you feel desperate, depressed, you're never outside of God's sight. His eye is on you and he's watching you. Number two, not only are we never outside of Christ's sight, we're never outside of Christ's reach. Look at the end of verse 48 through verse 50. Verse 48, um, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So again, remind you, Jesus is on the land. The disciples are out in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The text says it's the fourth watch. So uh, that's 3 to 6 a.m. is that, that window of time there that they call the fourth watch. And according to the laws of nature uh, and gravity, for anyone else, for, for me and for you, it would seem that they were out of reach. <laughs> They're out in the middle of the sea and Jesus is up on the mountain and Jesus was unable to do anything for their situation. It would seem that way, but Jesus is not anyone else. He's not you or me. And he comes walking right out to them. He walks right out to them. This is the big miracle in the text, that Jesus walks on water. And I think critics have tried to explain this away. Skeptics have tried to, to give other, other explanations for how this could have happened. Some will say that it was an optical illusion, that, uh, that it was actually caused by Jesus walking along the shore. And from their perspective in the boat, it looked like he was walking on the water, which is silly because if they're in the middle of the sea and they have a conversation with Jesus... It wouldn't seem that they would see him on the shore, you know, two miles away. So that's silly. Some have said that it's a deception thing, that Jesus is tricking them by walking on a sandbar in the middle. That's just silly. (laughs) That takes more faith to believe than actually believing what the text says. It's just a silly excuse. No, this was, friends, a true, authentic miracle. Jesus walking on top of the water. It demonstrates his authority over nature. It demonstrates his nature as truly God. Job chapter 9, verse 8, says this, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea? 
Jesus certainly had this in mind as he was walking up to the disciples. Jesus, in this miracle of walking on the water, is clearly and definitively saying, once again, he's already said this through Mark's gospel before, that he is true God in flesh. That the God of the Old Testament is the one that's walking on the water right up to them. The one who created and fashioned the heavens, the one who trampled out the sea, is walking to these disciples. Verse 48, if you continue, it says that, uh, that he meant to pass by them. And this, this phrase has troubled a lot of folks. Uh, why, would they, why would Mark say this? What does it mean that Jesus wanted to pass by them, that his desire was to pass them by? I think uh, David Garland in his commentary gives us six ways uh, to understand this, six things that this could mean. It was either one that, that Jesus wanted to kind of overtake them playfully and then surprise them on the other side. Maybe, I don't know. Second, maybe explanation, Jesus wanted to pass by them, but when he sees their distress, he changes his mind. He wanted to pass by them, but he wouldn't leave them where they... But that doesn't make sense because it's already said on the mountain that he saw their distress even there. So that explanation doesn't really work. Some said that Jesus was trying to test their faith, and so his passing by them was to, 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 to see if they would trust him, to calm the storm as he did the first time. I don't know there. there there's other explanations for how this may have played out and, and why it would say in the text that he, he wanted to pass by them. Um, but I think there's a better understanding for what's going on here, and I think it's rooted in the Old Testament. I think it's rooted in an Old Testament understanding of what would happen when God appeared before his people. You know where I'm going with this? In Exodus chapter 33, you have Moses, and Moses wants to see the glory of God. He asks for this to happen. And, uh, Mo- and Moses, in, in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says, Show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, and don't miss this, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and my glory passes by. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then you go into 1 Kings chapter 19, and you see this language again. Again, this time it's with Elijah. And, and, and God says to Elijah, he says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. So here are these occasions in the Old Testament where the Lord passes by Moses. He passes by Elijah at Mount Horeb. And now the God of the Old Testament. To be clear, friends, Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament, is wanting to pass by his disciples so that they might see his glory. They might believe in who he is. They might see that he is the God of the Old Testament. He's wanting to pass by them to demonstrate who he is. Only God can walk on water, and Jesus is showing them that that is truly who he is. If you continue, it says he wanted to pass by them. When he saw them walking out on the sea, uh, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. The disciples are stuck out in the middle of the sea. Uh, They're likely still very tired. If you remember before the feeding of the 5,000, they were exhausted, and they were actually going for spiritual retreat. They were going for rest, and that didn't happen, at least not in that way. And so they are in this boat in the middle of the sea, and they, they see someone walking on the water towards them. And they don't have a category to understand this, as we wouldn't. They can't comprehend a human being walking on water. And, and that's reasonable, right? How many times have you seen that take place? 
And so they conclude it must be a ghost. Now remember, Christ is wanting to pass by them, to demonstrate his power, to reveal his glory, the who, who he is to them. Jesus wanted them to see him, and yet the disciples, they don't see him. In the Greek, the word is phantasma. They think that it's a ghost. They think it's some type of water spirit that's on the sea that's coming to torment them. Note in this, uh, real quickly, in Mark's gospel, we see nothing about Peter walking on the water with Jesus. In other gospel accounts, this is the, the same narrative. It's the story where Peter walks on the water with Jesus, and then he begins to sink, and Jesus rescues him. But why is it that Mark doesn't mention it? Is it that it didn't happen? Well, no, it happened. Why would, not, why would Mark not include it? Well, remember, who is Mark's primary eyewitness? Who is Mark interviewing as he's writing his gospel account? Peter. So perhaps Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to make the main thing the main thing and focus our attention on Christ, on the Lord's actions and not his own. Mark, we know from uh, other examples in his gospel, he's interested in the one walking on the water, not the ones in the boat. And so in the details of this narrative, in the details of Mark's gospel, we see the power of Jesus on display. And so I think that's why, at least in this gospel account, uh, we don't see the, the version with Peter. So what does it mean for us? Well, just as you are never out of Christ's sight, church family, you're never outside of his reach. And so we see this, that whatever dilemma it is that's going on in our life, whatever problem it is that we can't see the end of, he's powerful enough and caring enough to do something about it. We're never outside of his reach. At exactly the right time, in his time, and in his way, for his purposes, he will work. And like the disciples, I think we, and we too often do not recognize it's him at work, right? So often we see this problem get fixed in our lives. This solution comes into our lives and we attribute it to, to, to dumb luck or being in the right place at the right time or uh, the chips fell like they, no, that's Jesus. You're never outside of his reach. Don't mistake him for a phantasma. Don't, ex don't mistake him for some water spirit or dumb luck. Notice when Christ is working in your life and he is the one rescuing you. And we need to realize this as his children. We're never outside of his reach. Number three, and final, we're never outside of Christ's care. Verses uh, 50 through 56. We're never outside of his sight. We're never outside of Christ's reach. We're never outside of Christ's care. Look at verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Three things Jesus says to them. He says, first, take heart, take courage. Second, it is I. In the Greek, that's ego, I am I. And we'll come back to that in a moment because that's the most significant thing he says. And then third, he says, do not be afraid. So take heart, it's me, it's I, don't be afraid. And then he gets into the boat with them and the wind stops, which we've seen Jesus do before. So what is it with this it is I phrase? Ego, I, me. Uh, simply translated, I am. Jesus comes up walking to them on the water and uses these words translated in the Hebrew, the exact words that God spoke at the burning bush to Moses. Who shall tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. So Jesus here is declaring himself to be the great I am of the Old Testament that led the Israelites out of Egypt, the one who led the Israelites through the Red Sea. Yes, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the one that that was talking about. I am the great I am. And he desired to pass by that they may see his glory, that his people, that these disciples in the boat would know that it's him, that he is the God of the universe. 
In the midst of these difficult circumstances, you may be tempted to believe that God doesn't care. Even if God knows, even if he can see it, even if I'm within his reach, I don't even know that he cares or I wouldn't still be going through this situation. The great I am is passing by. The great I am, the God of the Old Testament, the one who's worked all those extreme wonders and signs before us and recorded them in his word, that one is the one who's within reach. God has not abandoned you. God has not forgotten you. Note the timestamps here. It's interesting that Mark gives us some, some time stamps in the text. And the first one he gives us, it's, he says it's evening. Jesus is watching them from the mountain. He's watching them in the evening. And they're struggling against the sea, against the waves. And they're making headway painfully, the text says. So evening. The, the next time stamp we're given in the text, it says it's fourth watch. 3 to 6 a.m., Jesus finally goes to their aid. We're not told why Jesus lets them struggle this long. We're not told why Jesus lets them struggle all night against the waves. Yet, they're struggling in this boat. They're working their behinds off trying to get across the lake from evening, so maybe 6 o'clock until 4th watch, maybe 6 a.m. So as many as 12 hours, Jesus just lets it go. For, for 12 hours, Jesus just lets them huff it out and struggle and persevere and, and wear themselves down to the bone, we're not told why. We're not given the reason why. But we know it was for their good and it was for the glory of God. It was to reveal to them who Jesus is. And similarly, I don't know why God allows us to go through difficult times. I don't know why God allows us to go through trials. I don't know why God allows things to come into our lives that crush us. But I do know it's for our good. It's for His glory. I know it's that in those times that he's teaching us. I know that it's in those times that he's developing our faith and our character. I know that in those times he's transforming us into the image of Christ. Verse 51, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. You see, the disciples needed to grow. They needed to grow in their faith. They needed to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus had just fed this crowd of people from a few loaves and a couple fish. He had miraculously provided for them food in this wilderness area. He had already calmed a storm similar to this, even more drastic than this, on the same exact lake. He provided protection before. They should have been able to trust that he would protect them now. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand who he was. All of his teaching, all of his miracles, they were astonished. Because they were still growing in understanding, growing in knowledge of who Jesus is. You know, I think if you'd have asked them in the midst of that storm, when they were just struggling all night long trying to get across the lake and they were going nowhere, I think if you'd have asked them in that moment, they would have probably done anything to done it differently. Uh, we could have waited till morning when the, the sea was calm. Maybe we could have went across then when the sea was like glass. Or, or, or They would have done anything to have changed those circumstances. But now, in hindsight, after they've experienced Christ's power, after they've seen the great I am walking on water toward them, I don't think they would have traded that moment for anything. I don't think they would have done it any differently. I think they would have wanted it exactly the same way. Why? Because they saw Jesus. Why? Because they had more knowledge of who Jesus is. Why? Because they'd experienced the Savior of the world. And when, when you've seen Christ, when you've tasted and seen Jesus, there's nothing that will replace that. There's nothing on this earth as good as that. And so Mark finishes off this section of his gospel with verses 50, 53 through 56. He says this, When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him 
and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in the villages and cities and countryside, they laid sick in marketplaces and implored him that he might touch, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This is a summary of, of an undefined period of time. We don't know how long, what, how much time has passed in this section, but the, the words wherever in verses 56 and verses 55 demonstrates that he's moving about. There's some time that's lapsing here. Notice also that, that they go somewhere that they were not intended. In verse 45, it says they were headed to Bethsaida. Verse 53, it says that they came uh, to the land of the Gennesaret. And so these strong winds sovereignly redirected their route. Uh, I think there's a word for us in that, that we shouldn't be so rigid. We shouldn't be so stuck on our plans, even plans that we heard from Jesus, right? Go to Bethsaida. Even plans that we were convinced of, not to be so rigid that we won't allow Christ to change them. Uh, not so rigid that we won't allow Christ to redirect us. Note the contrast here between the disciples and the people of Gennesaret. The disciples thought Jesus was a ghost. The people immediately recognized him when his feet hit the shore. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' power because they still didn't fully understand what was going on and who he was. The people, in childlike faith, believe that Jesus can heal them and help them, and so they go running up to him. They bring their sick to him. They lay them in the marketplace so that they can simply touch his garment and be healed. And once again, Jesus' love and compassion are clearly evident here. As many as touched that garment were healed. Do you see the compassion of Christ? Do you see the love of Christ? I think the message is clear. Jesus cares for people. Jesus cares for you. You're never outside of his sight. You're never outside of his reach. And you're never outside of his care. Would you come to him today? Even in this moment, even if this week you're facing something that you don't see the end of and you don't know how you're going to ever endure it or get through it, come to the cross. You'll find here a Savior who loves you and is waiting to receive you. And even if you have to still endure that thing, you're not doing it alone. You're doing it with the one who controls all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, this text to us. And I pray our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged. That we know you're watching us. That we know you care for us. And that we're never out of your reach. Help us to surrender to you today, Father. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. That you would not count your life so high a price that you would not lay it down so that we can have our sins forgiven and work in this moment spirit draw us to yourself for every believer in the room I pray that you would encourage us strengthen us for any person in this room that's not a follower of Christ I pray that you would identify sin and the need for a savior help us to respond to you today Jesus it's in Christ's name I pray amen